Our Father, we're delighted to be in your house, fellowshipping with one another and focusing our attention on the Word of God. You have spoken down through the ages, and your words have been recorded for us to read. And we're thankful that you have trusted us with the precious Word of God. And Father, I pray that we will be found rightly dividing the Word of Truth, and that we will be recipients of the voice of your Spirit as you speak to us through your Word and that in every way you will be honored and exalted today, not only in this class amongst us, but throughout our Sunday school this morning in each and every class, and in the service which is taking place at this hour also. Father, glorify yourself, we pray. We thank you for your answers to prayer. We thank you that you protected Jonathan from more serious injury. And Father, we pray that uh, you will defeat the evil one. We know he's always trying to tear down the work of God, however he can, and we trust you to stand against him and to bring the victory through your great and glorious name. In Christ's name we pray, amen. I would like to read this morning, beginning in the seventh chapter of the book of Exodus, at verse 14. Seventh chapter of the book of Exodus, at verse 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is stubborn. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he is going out to the water and station yourself to meet him on the bank of the Nile and you shall take in your hand the staff that was turned into a serpent. And you will say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you saying, Let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness. But behold, you have not listened until now. Thus says the Lord, By this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, I will strike the water that is in the Nile with the staff that is in my hand, and it shall be turned to blood. And the fish that are in the Nile will die, and the Nile will become foul, and the Egyptians will find difficulty in drinking water from the Nile. Then the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over the rivers, over the streams, over their pools, over all their reservoirs of water, that they may become blood. And there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, both in the vessels of wood and in the vessels of stone. God sent Moses to confront the God ruler of Egypt as he stood on the very banks of the sacred Nile River itself. God was about to demonstrate that it is he and not Osiris that is Lord of life and Lord of creation. I don't have time, if you weren't here last week, to go back into our discussion of Osiris and his role, but suffice it to say, Osiris was one of the leading gods of Egypt, and often he was considered to be the principal god of the Nile River. And so the Nile was the sacred river of Egypt, the source of life because it was the very, the water carrier of the whole land. And so to strike the Nile is to strike the very heart of Egypt. Pharaoh was warned that he must either release Israel or face a major catastrophe. That is the conversion of the water of all of Egypt, at least the surface water, into blood. Pretty ghastly when you really think about this. Now, obviously, as you deal with a passage like this, you're going to be confronted by people who've got various explanations. 
The standard explanation for this plague is that the Nile suddenly, or maybe not so suddenly, uh, became loaded with sediment. Now, as I've mentioned to you before, the, the Nile River flood, flooded, used to flood annually. The dams prevent that now. But the water would come rushing down out of Ethiopia when they had the, the, the summer monsoons that would strike in Ethiopia. And the water would come down the so-called Blue Nile. And the Blue Nile, I think I mentioned before, provides about 60% of the total flow of the Nile River. But it's very periodic. The, uh, blue, the blue Nile will increase uh, from low flow to high flow by a, ma by a factor of 64 times. And so at its high point, the water comes rushing down out of the Ethiopian highlands. It's absolutely laden with silt. And, and it becomes red just as the Colorado River is red from all the silt that washes down into it as it uh, moves down into the Colorado Canyon. So the standard explanation is, well, the river was simply red with silt. And of course, they described it as blood. Well, if this is so, why is this so unusual then? Well, the answer is, well, it was a lot more silt-laden than normal. It was more muddy than normal. normal it's, normally it's muddy, but not so much that you can't you know, drink the water. But now it's just soupy with dirt. You know. Others would say, well, it's very possible that it was out of season, that it was heavy with silt in a time when it wasn't normally supposed to be. It wasn't during the normal flood time, which is late summer to early fall. Uh, so it was some other time of the year. And yet others will argue that it was the sudden appearance of the silt and, and not the slow increase as was typical. Well, you know, when you stop to analyze all these ways of trying to explain away what the scripture plainly says, you, you come up with the fact that either the people in the ancient world had to be awfully stupid to interpret it this way, I mean to present it this way, or the unusual things that could be used to explain uh, this, quote, miracle would have to almost be miraculous. So it doesn't really explain anything. The problem is, uh, at least it was for the Egyptians, that this unusual amount of, quote, sediment was apparently complicated by the growth of bacteria and algae so that the river water had become non-potable, in fact, even toxic. Well, this is not the normal regime. When the river floods in uh, late summer and, and early fall and the muddy waters come down, it's not non-potable. It's a little silty, but it's not non-potable. You can still drink it. And, it. and, you know, all of you have had at least some exposure to dirty water. You know, if you let it sit for a little while, the, the sediment filters out, and it pretty well clarifies, at least as far as the sediment is concerned. So what we're talking about here is not at all the normal condition even though some would like to imply that it was. Think about it for a moment. Here we have the God of the universe trying to impress upon Pharaoh and the people of Egypt that it is he who is God and not Osiris. And in doing that, he's going to just kind of normal, use a normal phenomenon to try to demonstrate that he is greater than Osiris. I mean, the people of the ancient world weren't that stupid. They understood probably the phenomena of nature better than we do because they were closer to it. They weren't so boxed in by the busyness of city life. You know, we have to take special courses to learn about nature. 
where they just knew it from living in it. And it, it really is, in my opinion, a very um, arrogant approach. But, of course, the, the situation is based on the fact that many commentators do not want to allow that God ever intervenes miraculously in human affairs. Because they can't deal with that. It's, it's not orderly if you've got someone moving in and, and changing things. And so they don't want to take that approach. They rather find a natural explanation and then blame the gullible, superstitious ancient people for not understanding the phenomena of nature and therefore proclaiming it to be a miracle. But we have to remember one thing. The author of this book ultimately is God of the Bible. When Moses wrote this account, he uses for the word blood the Hebrew word for blood, not for sediment or silt. He uses the word that is used 360 times in the Old Testament and almost in every single instance referring to human blood or animal blood that's being shed in either war or sacrifice. Now, he is using the word for blood here, that the river became blood. Now, to us, that's a ghastly thought. And certainly it is a ghastly thing that hit Egypt. I think it's clear as we study through all ten of these plagues that the almighty El Shaddai of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is demonstrating his power by doing things that could only be explained as divine miracle because he is at war with the demonic forces that are behind the culture, the religion, and the government of Egypt. And so God is not going to do things that can just be explained naturally because the ancients could easily say, obviously, that's just what happened anyway. It's just coincidence. Now, God literally transformed the river of the Nile into blood. That water became blood. Now, I'm not going to tell you anybody ran an analysis of it and could tell you how many, you know, what the red cell count was and all the rest of this stuff. It turned into blood. For all practical purposes, it was blood. And what is interesting is, in this passage we read, that even the water in the stone and wood containers that had, you know, were sitting some, setting someplace aside, water that had been taken out of the river before and was uh, sitting on somebody's veranda, if you will, all of that was converted to blood too. How do you explain sediment getting into those simply because maybe the water in the river was polluted by a lot of sediment being washed down. It's, it just doesn't make any sense. Verse 20 of Exodus 7. So Moses and Aaron did even as the Lord had commanded. And he lifted up the staff and struck the water that was in the Nile in the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants. And all the water that was in the Nile was turned to, to blood. And the fish that were in the Nile died. And the Nile became so foul, and the Nile became foul, so that the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile. And the blood was through all the land of Egypt. But the magicians of Egypt did the same with their secret arts. And Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he did not listen to them, as the Lord had said. Then Pharaoh turned and went into his house with no concern even for this. 
So all the Egyptians dug around the Nile for water to drink, for they could not drink the water of the Nile. Seven days passed after the Lord had struck the Nile. Moses and Aaron, in obedience to the word of the Lord, carry out God's command. Remember, God had said that Aaron would be to Moses as a prophet, and Moses would be to Aaron as God, that is, the voice of God. And the two were a team. It is Moses who is directed, it is Aaron who acts. It is Moses' rod that is used to touch the water. In obedience, they work together. Standing there on the banks of the Nile River, I don't know if you can portray this, but standing there on the banks of the Nile, the Nile as it runs through most of Egypt is pretty placid, uh, with reeds along the bank, standing there looking at the Nile as Aaron dips the tip of the rod into the river, and the holy Nile, quote unquote holy, becomes blood. Now, I don't know how you can explain it, even if you want to believe in sediment. Was this Aaron and Moses were watching? The sediment's coming. Get ready. Get ready. The sediment's coming. Oh, it's almost here. Now do it. You know. If you've ever seen, uh, I think it's the Ten Commandments, where the rod is tipped in the, the river, where the red starts radiating out for the, from the tip of the uh, rod. I, I don't know if it happened like that. I think probably the whole river just flashed red at the moment, up and down through the entire length of Egypt. Whatever the case was, there was an instant, instantaneous transformation of the river. And within minutes, fish began to turn belly up and float down the river. Probably a lot more in sediment for that to happen. The river, we're told, became foul, meaning it began to stink. Osiris was shown for what he was, a powerless god in the face of the Almighty. So what does Pharaoh do? Oh no, this terrible thing. Please take the people out of the land. No. He says, magicians, come. This is what he's done. You do it. Somehow they got clear water. I don't know where they got the clear water, but somehow they got clear water and by the sleight of hand, demonic power, they were able to convert that clear water into blood. I mean, how rinky-dink. And yet Pharaoh uses this this, this little demonstration here as an excuse for hardening his heart against God and saying, big deal, my magicians can do it too. Right? The whole river? The whole land? Well, a little bowl of water. Obviously, he has already convinced, committed in his heart to reject all that Moses had to say and the God of Moses, regardless of what was demonstrated. And notice... The passage, in effect, tells us he was so unconcerned that he simply turned on his heel and walked back into the palace as if nothing had ever happened. <laughs> Here he is, standing on the banks of his very sacred Nile. It has been converted into blood, and he cannot control this. Osiris, the god he came out to worship, is totally powerless, and he acts as if nothing's happened. What's interesting, though, the passage makes it quite clear that the people of Egypt are not quite so nonchalant about this. Because Pharaoh can go back into his palace and drink his wine. But the people of Egypt have got to drink water. They can't afford wine. And so the river turning into blood is a big deal to them. And the scripture tells us they couldn't drink the river water. And they had to dig 
dig in the banks of the Nile and dig into the land around the Nile, trying to find groundwater that would be non-polluted. Now, in verse 24, we're not told whether they actually found water that was non-polluted or not. I think they probably did. I think in this instance, God allowed the groundwater to remain normal. It was the surface water that he converted into blood and allowed the groundwater to remain normal, unaffected by the plague. Now, in verse 25, we read simply, and seven days passed after the Lord had struck the Nile. It doesn't say in that passage, did God therefore after seven days clear up the Nile? Doesn't say. But as you move on into the next chapter, and we go on to the, we go on to the next plagues, it's, the implication is that yes, the Nile did clear up. That God does not pile plague upon plague simultaneously. But one plague comes, one plague ends, another plague comes, another plague ends. And, and so they're sequential, but not concurrent, seems to be the implication as you read through these passages. The plagues tend to be of short duration. Because if they were very long duration, the whole crew would be wiped out. There wouldn't be anything left to plague. So uh, the, the duration was uh, generally kept short. As we move into the eighth chapter, we are going to discover in this chapter the second, third, and fourth plagues being brought on the land of Egypt by God. I'd like to read the first seven verses. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go that they may serve me. But if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will smite your whole territory with frogs. And the Nile will swarm with frogs, which will come up and go into your house and into your bedroom and on your bed and into your houses of your servants, on your people, into your ovens and into your kneading bowls. In effect, everywhere. So the frogs will come upon you and your people and all your servants. Then the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Stretch out your hand with your staff over the rivers, over the streams, over the pools, and make frogs come up on the land of Egypt. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt, and the frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. And the magicians did the same with their secret arts, making frogs come up on the land of Egypt. God sends Moses and Aaron back to Pharaoh. This really becomes an oft-repeated scenario. Moses and Aaron back to Pharaoh. Go away. Come back to Pharaoh. Go away. Come back to Pharaoh. I think it got a little old for both Moses and Aaron and Pharaoh. God was implying that if, Mo, if, if Pharaoh didn't respond by releasing the Israelites, which God very well knew he wouldn't, then God was going to cause millions of frogs to come hopping out of the Nile River and into the whole land of Egypt, all over the people and in everything that they did. The land would be, become literally slimy with frogs from one end to the other. Now, what kind of frogs were these? Well, we don't know. But the most prolific frog in, in Egypt today is called the river frog. It's a little green, three-inch long amphibian that rarely leaves the river. But in this case, if this is the same frog, left the river in vast numbers, probably in greater numbers than there even were frogs in the Nile before this plague began. God just manufactured them instantly. 
Now, thinking of the turning of the river into blood, that was probably a direct assault by Yahweh on the gods of Egypt, upon Hapi, who was the ancient uh, god of the Nile, upon Apis and Isis, the male and female goddesses, god and goddess of fertility, symbolized by the bull and the cow, and then also Osiris that we talked about in considerable detail last week, uh, particularly Osiris. So if, if that was a direct affront to these gods, what is this plague of frogs? What does it express? Uh, what is the confrontation here? Well, the best we can tell is that uh, one of the gods, actually a goddess who was attacked, was probably Hecate, H-E-K-E-T, who was the goddess of childbirth. She was a frog-headed goddess, sometimes portrayed as a, as a frog in entirety, who was to superintend the birth process and who was inscribed on an amulet that was often worn by pregnant women as good luck charm for the moment of their birth. Now, as you probably are well aware of, in our more medically advanced society, successful birth is much more common. But the, the death rate at birth in many parts of the world, particularly in primitive lands, is very, very high. At least it's unacceptably high from our point of view. And certainly in ancient Egypt, uh, those who have studied the ancient Egyptians and have dug up some of these mummies and actually done some microscopic work on them have discovered that many of these mummies had diseases, ser serious diseases when they died. So disease was probably uh, fairly rampant in the land of Egypt. And therefore, the uh, death at birth was probably relatively high. And so it was very important to have this uh, good luck charm, to have the favor of this goddess. And so to strike this goddess could be a forewarning of what was to come. As you know, the final plague will be the destruction of all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. But at the same time, this is certainly also another blow at Osiris because the river Nile was supposed to be a blessing to Egypt, the source of life. I mean, the transportation communication line, the water for drinking, the water for agriculture. And out of it was coming this foul curse over the land. Out of, out of good was coming evil. The God was obviously becoming a curse to the land. Now, what's interesting is there is in this passage no record of Pharaoh's reply. It doesn't say what he responded to Moses and Aaron or that he was even given any time. It seems like Moses and Aaron just simply said, this is what's going to happen, and then Moses said to Aaron, do it. And, and it happened. And the frogs came up out of the river and up out of the ponds and pools of the land. Some now, of course, try to rationalize this too, as they do all of these. Well, you know, if the river is so heavy with sediment that the fish begin to die, certainly the frogs are going to leave the river, right? And the frogs are going to be hopping out of this silt-laden river up onto the shore. Well, two points should be noted in response to this. You remember the last verse of the previous chapter. Seven days passed after the Lord had struck the Nile. And then these events take place. If these frogs are, res are responding to the river's condition, they, they've been very slow in their response. <laughs> A whole week passes before they decide, you know, this is too muddy. We better get out of here. It doesn't make any sense at all. These, these frogs are moving 
uh, a whole week later. The fish had been dying off almost right away. So how'd the frogs stick in there for all this time if that was the cause of their leaving the river? And then secondly, the implication of the wording here is that Aaron stretched out his hand and instantly the frogs began to pour out by millions. I mean, it was a direct response to Aaron's action. So if it was a natural thing, Aaron had to plan it very, very well. He had to somehow note when the frogs were all going to come out so that he put his rod out just the time the frogs were emerging from the river. Yeah. Makes no sense to try to argue it away in that method. Verse 7 to me is almost hilarious. And the magicians did the same with their secret arts. <laughs> this is pretty dumb. The magicians also made frogs come forth. Ever think about this in some detail? The whole land is lousy with frogs. How do you know the magicians have brought any more forth? I mean, it's already crawling with them. And, and what does this demonstrate about the power of the magicians? They just make the plague worse, not better. I mean, if their God is so great, why don't they send the frogs back into the river? In the name of Osiris and Amun-Ra and Isis and all the other gods and goddesses of the land, I command you frogs to go back into the river. I mean, that's what they should have done, but they don't. They just, quote, make more frogs by their secret art. It really helps the situation, you know, a great deal. What it does, of course, is prove that their power is meaningless. So on a small scale, they can duplicate what Moses and Aaron have done on a massive scale in the name of God. I mean, the magicians are representing all the pantheon of Egypt, hundreds of gods and goddesses. And the combined power of hundreds of gods and goddesses can make half a dozen frogs compared to God making billions of them. You know, it just doesn't make any sense at all. But, you know, Pharaoh is, is of course, convinced. Now, as far as we know, there's no in indication that any of these frogs were, were poisonous or were any, in any direct way dangerous. You know, you couldn't get bit by one or gummed or whatever frogs do to you. Um, there's no direct implication that they carried disease or whatever. There are references in the Psalms, of course, that this was a destructive plague, but you can imagine uh, it was probably more destructive on people's mental well-being than anything else. It was a horrible, disgusting thing. I mean, I've read about little plagues of these teeny frogs we have around here and people get tired of having to walk on them when they walk down a walkway someplace. Can you imagine the whole countryside, everywhere you go, covered with frogs this big? I mean, basically wall-to-wall -wall frogs. Everywhere you walk, you're stepping on a frog. Uh, everywhere you roll anything, you're squishing frogs. I mean, it's just a mess. You can't sleep in your bed without sleeping on frogs. You can't eat without frogs being in your bowl and in your drink and everywhere there are frogs. Now, if you're into frog legs, I suppose, you know, that's... <laughs> you're having a grand time. But uh, frogs were not particularly highly honored by the ancient Egyptians, even though they had a goddess who was a frog goddess. They didn't think as highly of the frog as they did some other creatures in their pantheon of belief. Now, we have to understand that this is one of the more gentle plagues, though, that God is going to bring. It's a nuisance. And, of course, if it were to last for years, it would probably would be more than anybody could take. But it's not near as destructive as plagues yet to come. 
And those plagues will yet come because Pharaoh will continue to harden his heart and reject the word of God and thus force God, in, in, in effect force God, to turn up the heat. That is to increase the intensity of the plagues, the severity of them, ultimately resulting in the die-off of hundreds of thousands of Egyptians before it's all over. Interesting thing here. Search through the Old Testament as you will. You will find no other reference to frogs out of the context of this passage. A couple of places in Psalms, but they refer to this event. No other mention of frogs at all in the Old Testament. And there's only one mention of frogs in the New Testament. And that's in the book of Revelation, where it says, Out of the mouth of, dra of the dragon came three demonic spirits who were frog-like. And that's it. It's all the references there are in Scripture to frogs. What's interesting, in many of the ancient religions, frogs were considered to be somewhat related to serpents and therefore were not considered a very delightful creature. Verse 8, Pharaoh called for Moses and Aaron, <laughs> about time, and said, Entreat the Lord that he remove the frogs from me and from my people. And I will let the people go, that they may sacrifice to the Lord. And Moses said to Pharaoh, The honor is yours to tell me. When shall I entreat for you and your servants and your people, that the frogs be destroyed from you and your houses, that they may be left only in the Nile? And he said, Tomorrow. So he said, May it be according to your word, that you may know that there is no one like the, God, the Lord our God. And the frogs will depart from you and your houses and your servants and your people, and they will be left only in the Nile. Then Moses and Aaron went out from Pharaoh, and Moses cried to the Lord concerning the frogs which he had inflicted upon Pharaoh. And the Lord did according to the word of Moses, and the frogs died out of the houses and the courts and the fields. So they piled them up in heaps, and the land became foul. But when Pharaoh saw that there was relief, he hardened his heart, and did not listen to them as the Lord had said. Now all of us have probably at some time had to deal with a hard-hearted, stubborn person. But this person has got to pretty much hold the record here, Pharaoh. Verse 8 of this passage is a very, very significant verse. You see some very significant things coming out in this particular passage. Um, first of all, it, imp it implies, it infers that Pharaoh is beginning to recognize that his own magicians are relatively powerless when faced with the God of Moses and Aaron. Yeah, they convert a little bowl of water to, to blood. They, they manufactured a few frogs, but really when you come right down to it, it's pretty small in comparison to what Moses and Aaron have done. Secondly, at least momentarily, Pharaoh's resolve appears to break a little. And he says, finally, okay, okay, I will let the Israelites go if you will get these frogs off the land. Now, before that, he's never even implied he would ever let the Israelites go. But now, he at least has said, now he's going to renege on this, and, and he won't do it. But at least he says, I will let the Israelites go. That was a big step on his part, because he had to say that to Moses and Aaron, even though he didn't really mean it. Thirdly, and most importantly, he was forced to begin to acknowledge God. Remember his first response, Who is the Lord 
that I should listen to him. Who's this God you're talking about? But notice his words here. He says to Moses and Aaron, please entreat Yahweh for me. Well, you don't entreat someone you don't believe in. You don't even talk about a God that you don't even believe exists. Pharaoh is beginning to be forced to acknowledge that the God of Moses and Aaron is truly a powerful God. So headway is being made here, slowly but surely. But God is not finished with Pharaoh yet. Now it's very interesting here in this passage. Notice how Moses reacts. He says, Pharaoh, you have the honor of naming the hour at which you want the frogs to be departed from the land. This is, of course, to further drive the point home that it is Moses' God who determines what is going to happen in human history. He's allowing Pharaoh to declare the time, but it will then be Moses asking God to do it at Pharaoh's request. It's subtle, but it still drives the point home. Now, I, I don't know if you thought about this in uh, previous readings of this or as we read it here this morning. Well, let's look at those verses again. Verse uh, 9. And Moses said to Pharaoh, The honor is yours to tell me, When shall I entreat for you and your servants and your people that the frogs be destroyed from you and your houses and that they be left only in the Nile? And he said, Tomorrow. And so Moses said, So be it. Ever think about why did Pharaoh say tomorrow? Why didn't Pharaoh say now? Right this minute. Wouldn't that be a grand de demonstration if they just all of a sudden plopped over and died everywhere at that very moment? Why did he say tomorrow? Did he like them? You know? Was he excited about having frogs all around? Was he a frog lover? No, I don't think so. I think there were at least two reasons. I think in the back of his mind, there was still a hope that another answer could be found that would discredit Moses and his God. That somehow his magicians could come up with something that maybe the gods of Egypt could get their forces together and do something to display the fact that they really were more powerful. I think he had that little hope back there. And then secondly, <laughs> very common and characteristic of the human race, his pride dictated that he be cool and nonchalant about this. And that he demonstrate that he was still in power. Oh, well, let's see, I would say tomorrow, according to my word. Pharaoh was a very, very arrogant person. If you've ever read anything about Egyptian history, many of the pharaohs were so proud it's hard to even believe uh, the things they said and the things they did. Well, when you're God King, <laughs> I mean, who's to say you nay? Might as well live it up, right? Play it to the hilt. And certainly, that's what he's doing. We have to also remember, and I talked about this way back at the beginning, we have to put this back in historical context. Egypt has been at its political high point. We're not talking about Moses moving in against Pharaoh at the time when, when Egypt has crash-landed someplace and has become sort of the loser of all the nations. Egypt is in its imperial state, stage. Egypt has expanded its borders all the way down the Nile deep into what is today modern Sudan and all the way up to the borders of the Hittite Empire, which is in 
modern Turkey. And it, they were at the largest territorial expanse that they ever were in their history. And so you're dealing with, with, with a pharaoh who's used to being master of a, of a great and powerful and rich kingdom. And to be pushed around by the god of some puny slaves, pretty humiliating. So I think within that context, we can begin to understand why he does what he does. Now, we have no record in any of these passages that Moses had been told by God how to end a plague. But Moses seems to know very well, doesn't he? He has learned over, one, over 80 years how to entreat the Lord. And the scripture tells us here that after he had already talked with Moses, uh, I mean with Pharaoh, gave him the opportunity, you name the time, Moses, uh, Pharaoh, Pharaoh says tomorrow, so Moses and Aaron go out and it says, they pled with the Lord. They prayed to God that it would be as Pharaoh has said. It was a very simple prayer. Please, O oh Lord, tomorrow remove the frogs. Now, I don't think he prayed some big, long, stately prayer. Simple to the point. Lord, please remove the frogs for the glory of your name. Now, certainly a lot of frogs had died. A lot of them had been smashed. Egypt is a very, very dry land. And frogs probably out of water for very long in that very dry land begin to desiccate very quickly. They're not like toads that seem to manage to get around with their horny hides. They're, you know, easily evaporated. The water evaporates from them and uh, they begin to die. But there is no doubt that at the given hour there was an immediate die-off of all the frogs across the entire land. Plop. You know, the whole crew died off at the given hour as Moses had prayed. Can you imagine? Pharaoh's hope was that tomorrow the frogs will increase and continue to spread because that will mean that Moses is wrong and his God couldn't do it. But much to his chagrin, they all died. He probably sat there on his throne and watched them. At the given hour, they dropped off of everything and plopped on the floor and rolled over. Well, we've got to be realistic about it. That's probably the way it was. Interestingly, the ending of the plague created a huge problem. Dead frogs everywhere. Mountains of dead frogs. And of course, frogs are not the kind of creatures that, you know, just die inobtrusively. They're going to turn foul in a hurry. And so you can imagine them shoveling them up by the mountains and burying them or, or pushing them into the river or whatever. Uh, to try to get rid of them. The, the scripture tells us there that the whole land stunk, was foul, through the dead frogs that were all over the land. But as the problem abated and the pressure was off, what did Pharaoh do? Well, a promise is a promise. I guess I better let the Israelites go out and and sacrifice in the land. No, he said, I am ruler of Egypt. I am God, king of Egypt. What I say to Moses is meaningless. I will not let Israel go. Obviously, God is in this. God not only knows that Pharaoh will not let the people go, but God confirms the hardness of his heart. God confirms the hardness of his heart. As I mentioned Oh, several Sundays ago, as you read that passage, well, let me just turn to it so I say it right in the sixth chapter of Genesis. 
Verse 3, And the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever. There is a point at which God says, Fini, you have hardened your heart to the point of no return. And that is the case of Pharaoh. And God confirms the hardness of his heart, and he will push it through to the finale. He will push it through to the Passover, which God intended to be the great sign that Israel would carry through its subsequent generations as the sign of the Messiah, the great sign of the sacrificial lamb that would be slain for the sins of the world once and for all, but symbolically for 1,400 years from the time of the Passover. And all was moving up to that event. And God was confirming Pharaoh in his hardness so that he would not let Israel go until that act had been completed. Well, next Sunday we'll look at the third and fourth plagues as they are explained in the latter half of the eighth chapter.